0: Welcome to Medication Talk, the official podcast of TRC Healthcare, home of Pharmacist Letter, Prescribers Letter, RX Advanced, and the most trusted clinical resources. On today's episode, we'll be listening in as our expert panel clarifies when and how to use hormone therapy to manage menopausal symptoms. Our guest today is Dr. Carolyn J. Crandall from the University of California, Los Angeles School of Medicine. You'll also hear practical advice from panelists on TRC's editorial advisory board, Dr. Reed Blackwelder from East Tennessee State University. Dr. Andrea Darby-Stewart from Honor Health, and Dr. Stephen Nissen from the Cleveland Clinic. This podcast is an extract of TRC's Emerging Recommendations Panel webinar. Each month, experts and frontline providers discuss current medication therapy topics and practical recommendations to include in TRC's letter articles. The full webinar originally aired on October 17, 2022.
1: And now, the CE information.
0: Pharmacist Letter offers CE credit for this podcast. Please log into your pharmacist letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. For the purposes of disclosure, Dr. Stephen Nissen reports a relevant financial relationship by receiving grants or research support from AbbVie, Amgen, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Eli Lilly, Asperion, Medtronic, Novartis, Pfizer, and Silas Therapeutics. The other speakers you'll hear have nothing to disclose. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Now, let's join TRC editor, Dr. Lori Dickerson, and start our discussion. We're talking about this now because you'll get questions
1: about using hormone therapy to manage menopausal symptoms, including hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, etc. And so, Carolyn, to get us started, um, can you just give us a little bit of background about how the thinking about hormone therapy for menopausal symptoms has shifted over the recent years?
2: Sure. So um, over the last several years, um, we've had a proliferation of new non-oral hormone options uh, to think of for menopausal uh, symptom treatment. Um, We have a a large spectrum now of vaginal types of preparations of estrogen and non-estrogen treatments um, for vaginal symptoms. We have new insights into the duration of uh, therapy in relation to um, adverse effects of hormone therapy. And finally, we are sure now that we shouldn't be using um, estrogen uh, either alone or in combination with progestogen for primary prevention of any chronic conditions uh, as a routine. And th- I think those are the most recent important messages.
1: Those are great, Carolyn, and we're definitely going to dig into some of those and talk about the issues that you've you've brought up and I'm just curious too, like how have patient requests and questions about hormone therapy shifted over recent years in your practice?
2: um I think it's actually changed pretty much in parallel with what I just mentioned that is. That patients are interested in getting more information about new non-oral options, um, such as transdermal uh, estrogen preparations. Um, women are interested in how long to expect to be on hormone therapy and what that might, how that might play into the risks or adverse effects of taking hormone therapy. Um, and uh, I think there are more, um, more sophisticated questions now coming from women, for example, saying, should I take something that my ovary makes? Mm-hmm. Um, which is what we would term now a prescription bioidentical hormone that is um, estradiol that's in in a similar form to exactly what your ovary makes, which many of those preparations are available by prescription that are FDA approved now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of um, enthusiasm, I think, among my patients recently asking about Should I do this? And what do we know about these types of preparations, let's say, in comparison with older conjugated equine estrogen-containing regimens?
1: I appreciate that overview. And, Reed, I actually wanted to call on you. As a primary care provider, a family physician, I'm curious about sort of how questions have ebbed and flowed about hormone therapy for menopausal symptoms in your practice over recent years. Well, I think... um... It, there has been some ebb and flow, but it's still a pretty consistent issue. And I think the recognition of how dramatically um, uh, going through menopause impacts how a woman feels and function is something really to be aware of. And, and I think the challenge becomes weighing the, the pros and cons. And what I like most is that I think we have many more options now than what we often would do, which is just the oral agents. And I think that's, that's been the fun part is having the conversations about different options. Um, And I think that's excited a lot of my patients because um, they're aware of the risk of oral. And Andrea Derby-Stewart, I wanted to check on you. Um, I think you've just joined us, so thank you for joining us. And I'm just curious about a little bit of perspective and background from your women's health practice about hormone therapy for menopausal symptoms and how that's recently shifted.
3: Yeah, you know, this continues to be a topic of conversation amongst my patients who are perimenopausal as well as menopausal. Um, the thing that I'm uh, having some interesting challenges with is that many of my um, younger colleagues um, start, were training in the era of the Women's Health Initiative when everybody decided that hormones were awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so don't feel comfortable as practicing primary care physicians um, recommending uh, this as a modality. Uh, to help treat their patients.
1: Well, great. I think that's uh, a good reason for us to be writing about this uh, with these new guidelines to help folks feel more confident in discussing the pros and cons. And so, um, Carolyn, let's start with when should clinicians and patients consider systemic hormone therapy for menopausal symptoms? And we make a statement in our article to think of systemic HT for bothersome symptoms in healthy patients under age 60 or within 10 years of their last period. And so, I guess, first of all, can you comment on that recommendation? Is that consistent with the evidence in your current practice?
2: Yes, that would be consistent. Um, So uh, basically what we think is that women who are younger when they initiate hormone therapy may have um, more benefit to risk balance, in other words, more beneficial. And so we like the idea if they uh, are under age 60 in terms of that overall um, balance of benefit compared to risk or or within 10 years of their last period. and And for sure, the standard indication now, the accepted one is to limit systemic HT to women who have bothersome symptoms. So menopause isn't a disease. We don't have to treat menopause per se. We leave the decision to the woman in terms of what is bothersome. And she gets to define that, you know, as to her daily life and how much is is interference is caused by, let's say, night sweats keeping her up, etc. Or, or having trouble uh, uh, at work being just miserable and, and feeling like her her function is not where it, she wants it to be. Mm-hmm.
1: So, and, and again, these are the folks on which the benefits of improved quality of life, like you say, these bothersome symptoms um, seem to outweigh rare risks such as breast cancer or thrombosis. And uh, I think we'll touch a little bit more on some of these risks, but this is, I think, what you're talking about in terms of quality of life and bothersome, bothersome symptoms. Yes, Carolyn? Exactly right. Okay. Yes. very good. And so that's systemic hormone therapy. And then uh, let's just talk a little bit about vaginal estrogen therapy. Uh, And so, uh, you know, maybe we can, Carolyn, just differentiate briefly on uh, which which menopausal symptoms are helped with systemic versus vaginal estrogens. And when would you consider a vaginal estrogen? Sure.
2: So let's think about. Um, the logical thing first. If a woman only has local vaginal symptoms, then it it should be uh, uh, the best priority to give a local estrogen, or uh, let's say an FDA approved, you can include prasterone in that and intrarosa, local, but local therapy we think of rather than a systemic uh, estrogen um, or estrogen plus progestin combination. And then um, they do have minimal absorption if you give these vaginal preparations. Um, that is not to say they have none. So there are some studies that do show increased serum concentrations with these vaginal preparations, but we're, but it's going to be a lot lower than with systemic um, estrogen therapy. And uh, we are not actually even sure what is the clinical significance of those um, uh, of that small bump in serum. Uh, estrogen concentrations with oh, vaginal estrogen yeah got it. And um, yeah and, and, and we expect those symptoms to last basically forever um and so we sort of have a different time window involved whereas for systemic hormone therapy those candidates would be women who have hot flashes night sweats either or or both um and um we are trying to limit Um, duration to like five years, no more Mm -hmm. than five, if we possibly can to control symptoms, just because that's when we especially note that there is an increase, albeit small, but statistically significant increase in breast cancer risk that that we think begins um, at the five-year mark, at least with oral -hmm. oral estrogen uh, plus progestin therapy.
1: Okay, we're gonna come back to that. That is a great overview and um, talk a little bit about the duration also, but let's actually talk about breast cancer. Uh, We do have several audience questions coming in about breast cancer survivors, and so we did want to address that in the article. And so we make the uh, statement or the recommendation to work with your oncology colleagues if needed. Some breast cancer survivors may opt to use systemic or vaginal hormone therapy as a last resort. And so, um, Carolyn, just to get your feedback first on that, and then I want to hear from our primary care docs, too, uh, on, on, on how they're addressing this in their practice. So what are your thoughts on this statement, Carolyn?
2: Sure, I do agree with that statement. So we are no longer in an era of paternalistic medicine, right? We have shared decision making, and a woman who has breast cancer certainly has the right to say, look, um, these other measures I'm taking that are not estrogen are just not helping me enough. So they may opt to use systemic or vaginal hormone therapy, Um, and, and that's certainly their decision. But we do, though, have evidence, and it's important for us to just inform patients that there is potential for increased risk of recurrence if breast cancer survivors are using hormone replacement therapy. And that was particularly from the Habits trial that uh, attention got um, called to that. Mm-hmm. So we just, there is uh, an increase in potentially an increase in recurrence risk that we ought to tell breast cancer survivors who are thinking about taking systemic hormone therapy. And we probably want to start not systemic, but rather vaginal estrogen. If that were going to be, if the vaginal symptoms are, uh, are, are most distressing, then that's actually a little bit easier conversation in the sense that there's probably less absorption of estrogen when given vaginally. It's a little trickier with hot flashes where you're wondering about systemic the need for systemic therapy and we do have other um, non-hormone non, uh, alternatives that we can offer women with breast cancer um, instead of systemic hormone therapy to try to help them with their um, vasomotor symptoms, albeit um, they may have to uh, be off-label for that indication. Okay,
1: maybe. got it. Andrea, how do you address this with your patients? And, you know, I guess you may or may not know the type of breast cancer that they have as this would you refer them to oncology or do you discuss it with oncology what do you think about this recommendation that we have here is this directive enough for our readers
3: yeah i try and work um closely with my oncology colleagues for patients um that are experiencing symptoms um and have had breast cancer um is certainly i you know the hormonal activity of the breast cancer i think is um Less important to me than it is if I can help manage the patient's symptoms with the least amount of risk to them, meaning that um, if the oncologist is in agreement, we will start with topical um, hormonal therapy for um, uh for vaginal symptoms and uh, in terms of systemic therapy, I would echo Dr. Crandall's recommendations for medications that are um, non-hormonal to begin with if the patient's able to tolerate them and willing to consider those as well. But I would just um, certainly wanna talk um, closely Mm -hmm. with my oncology colleagues for recommendations.
1: Good, Good. okay, great feedback and overview there. So let's actually uh, move on to talk about which form of hormone therapy should be prescribed. And so, Carolyn, we make the recommendation to use a systemic estrogen, oral, transdermal, or fem ring vaginal ring for hot flashes and night sweats. Choose a patch, gel, or spray to possibly lower risk of thrombosis. And so, um, I guess to start with, using the systemic estrogens, uh, do you, how do you make a decision about which one to choose, oral versus transdermal versus vaginal?
2: Right, so um, this is really, I think, underappreciated that there that femring vaginal ring is systemic. Mm-hmm. and it's basically saying that just because you give something vaginally doesn't mean that it doesn't reach the brain or the breasts or other organs right it's basically a dose issue uh, if you give a high enough dose you can suppress people's hot flashes and that's what happens with that femring so we should first of all be very careful not to confuse femring with the lower dose of estring that we would use for Um, vaginal atrophy, you know, dyspareunia, dryness, itching, and in a vaginal um, Mm -hmm. uh, syndrome. Then um, beyond that, for choosing among the oral versus transdermal versus vaginal, I think the issue comes down to this. It's just tricky, where the Women's Health Initiative remains our gold standard because of being the only randomized controlled trial we have of any type of hormone therapy at all in relation to venous thromboembolism and cardiovascular disease and breast cancer. But the problem is, of course, Women's Health Initiative wasn't focused on these younger women with active hot flashes with hot flashes and night sweats. And so the, the truth of the matter is, I can't tell a woman for sure that an estrogen patch won't increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. What we do know is that all of the transdermal forms are probably, don't have any effect on coagulation, you know, on increasing um, um, coagulation factors. And therefore we think, although we don't have clinical trials, we think that transdermal preps are maybe associated with less venous thromboembolism, but I just, we can't really tell women that there's a lower risk of cardiovascular disease or breast cancer just because of a, a transdermal versus oral. Got it. So it's, it's down to individual preference, as mm-hmm. long as women understand the sort of lack of hard outcomes with transdermal compared to, mm-hmm. let's say, the Women's Health Initiative conjugated equine estrogen um, type of preparation used.
1: And so um, we actually were wondering about, in that second sentence there, choose a patch gel or spray to possibly lower risk of thrombosis. If, if it should be finished off with, Carolyn, in females at higher risk of thrombosis, or is this a general statement yeah,
2: for I all, all gen- women? Okay. Yeah, I think it's that's a general right. statement that um, we can do that uh, if we are interested in lowering the risk of thrombosis, and that's independent of whether she is at baseline high risk or not. Clearly, though, if she is at high base risk, definitely we want to choose a right, patch. Gel. Right, 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 right. Yeah.
1: And I want to differentiate, too, about um, femring and estering. But before I go there, uh, we wondered, actually, about the second sentence. Also, choose a patch gel or spray. Really, would um, a vaginal ring be in that list also, uh, for lower risk thrombosis, or really, no, are we just talking so about sure. the topicals? Not so sure.
2: Okay, we're not so sure. So I so like, sure. yeah, maybe the tweak I would recommend is um, choosing a patch, gel, or spray may possibly uh, lower uh, risk of thrombosis nice. because nice. because I don't honestly know for sure that the trade off of benefits yep. versus risk. You know what I mean? Yeah, so I, I like that better.
1: That's a nice tweak. Very good. Okay, now we have this handy little phrase on the next slide about how to remember the difference between uh, uh, fem ring and a string. So keep the vaginal ring straight with the phrase, a ring is bigger than a string. Now, we have used this for years, and it was brought to our attention uh, by one of our panelists years ago. FemRing provides a higher dose for systemic effects, and S-string is a lower dose for local effects. So that's a handy little way to keep those straight um, and to remember that the um, S-string is, of course, a a local product versus a systemic product. And so I just wanted to share that with with the group. And um, and then, Andrea, I just was wanting to hear a little bit from you, too. about uh your thoughts in 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 how you help your patients decide on which which formulation to use
3: yeah you know it's 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 an interesting uh discussion. It depends on what the patient has already done in terms of their um, uh research. I still yes. um have to battle a little bit uh some of my Uh, clinician colleagues who place pellets um, rather indiscriminately um, with all kinds of things uh, in them. Um, So, uh, you know, one of our biggest discussions is, you know, how how much is this going to cost? And that's actually um, become uh, fairly important with my patients um, in Arizona patches don't go over very well because they tend to uh, basically sweat off of you in the summer so I don't have a lot of people who take that up um, the gels and sprays tend to be much more expensive and so we're really looking at oral um, estrogens most of my patients have figured out um, uh, that conjugated estrogen um, is may not be what they want they want something that more closely approximates what their body makes and so they want to use estradiol and so we generally go with oral um, estradiol as a first start um, in many of my patients
1: okay I don't right. have many,
3: yet i don't have many people who um, want to use um, uh, the fem ring
1: mm-hmm. or mm-hmm.
3: systemic symptoms good
1: good overview thank you for that, that. Steve, yes.
2: Yes, i had a question yes uh, what do you all tell folks that have uh pre-existing cardiovascular disease about estrogen uh, supplementation. Carolyn, you wanna take that one? Uh, Sure. I mean, I feel like I take that as a pretty serious reason to try not to use hormone therapy. Um, I try to look if that I'm assuming you mean that the woman is having active hot flashes and nights that are really bothersome and then she wants to do something prescription about it and I so I would try to um, to say that if she's absolutely intent on using an estrogen it should certainly be transdermal but I would not recommend that I would recommend going with a non estrogen alternative to try to treat those vasomotor symptoms, um, especially because I really feel like that is a, a contraindication that, for example, the labeling takes quite seriously. Um, uh, and we have numerous trials uh, that have uh, secondary um, cardiovascular disease uh, trials of women who've already had preexisting cardiovascular disease showing increased risk of, um, of cardiovascular events. Um, with, with a systemic estrogen, right. not the patch, per se. Um, right. But, but um, so if you're going, if she absolutely wants it, absolutely do transdermal, but I would not um, be in favor of of that type of approach as a, as a first line in a woman with cardiovascular disease. And
1: so you'd be thinking about an SSRI or an SNRI exactly. or a gabapentinoid exactly. or a clonidine yeah. or something like that instead. Precisely. Okay. Precisely. Got it. Very good. Very good. Well, thanks for that. Uh, I'm going to move us along here. We do make a recommendation, of course, for patients with a uterus to add a progestin or use a combo to reduce endometrial cancer or, or hyperplasia risk. And I think that's a pretty state straightforward thing. And then, of course, if patients only have a va- only have vaginal or urinary symptoms, to use low-dose vaginal estrogen and a progestin isn't needed. So I think that's uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, but we do have a question coming in here. Um, from a community pharmacist that they often see patients with prescriptions for both estradiol, vaginal cream, uh, plus a patch. So oral, or I'm sorry, systemic and uh, vaginal products. And so Carolyn, could you comment on, uh, on the use of combination? This person is asking, you know,
2: does this make sense?
1: Or should this pharmacist call the prescriber to clarify if the patient needs both?
2: Right, that's a great question. So typically, if the woman has hot flashes or and/or night sweats and vaginal symptoms, we would start with a systemic form because there is evidence of improvement in both of those hot flashes, night sweats, and vaginal symptoms with systemic estrogen therapy. So that makes sense to start that way and give it long enough, like a couple of months, before deciding whether you should um, add on a local vaginal um, prescription therapy that's, that's approved for um, treating um, vaginal uh, symptoms. Uh, we wouldn't start using a combination first. Generally, we would, we would try to first see what happens with um, systemic alone and then add on a vaginal uh, preparation if, if we really need to. Mm-hmm. But I did want to mention one thing, though, that's really important. Transdermal estrogen by itself Unopposed by the progestogen causes like somewhere around 30% per year incidence of, of endometrial hyperplasia. So um, don't don't think that transdermal is always quote unquote safer. Um, it's okay to add, to, if you add the progestogen, it's fine. Uh, right. But, but be careful to think of it as a, as a systemic um, treatment. It does uh, resolve vasomotor symptoms, okay. and um, that's important to recognize.
1: Um had another question coming in actually from Andrea darby Stewart was wondering about perspective on DHEA vaginal suppositories. Many of her patients prefer this to prescribe topical estrogens. And so what are your thoughts on this,
2: uh Carolyn? Yeah, so um DHEA, also known as Prasterone, um, can it is is uh isn't recently approved, more recently approved. Um, vaginal preparation for the vaginal symptoms. So it's local for vaginal menopausal symptoms. And um, it's actually uh, seems to be very effective, but again, is not completely free of raising serum estradiol concentrations in the same way as other vaginal estrogens do. So, um, and then there are the cost implications Mm -hmm. as well that can sometimes come up. So there's no particular reason to think it is inferior to any of the vaginal estradiol preparations, um, but there may be cost implications, and they may also, um, it may also increase um, serum estradiol comp- concentration just slightly, just like the other um, vaginal estrogens may. We also don't have any long-term endometrial safety information about um, about intrarosa, or or for that matter, any of the vaginal estrogens really have only been examined for two years in, in clinical trials, and yet the symptoms last a long time. So we need to be very careful to counsel women to immediately report spotting, et cetera, with any of these, these preparations.
1: Oh, that's a good counseling tip, too. Um, so let's actually talk about how long to use hormone therapy and um, And also how to stop. And so we make the point in our article, Carolyn, that there's no quote right duration or age cutoff, but to start to think about stopping hormone therapy after four to five years, and as you mentioned previously, that's when breast cancer risk may slightly increase if using an estrogen and a progestin. Um, But of course many women will have hot flashes that continue for over a decade. So just curious about your thoughts on this recommendation and is this in in general how you approach the situation? This Def- discussion.
2: Yeah, definitely. That's how I approach the situation. So I mean, more than half of women have uh, hot flashes and night sweats for more than seven years. This is not just a, a, a rare occurrence. So we try, we base that four to five year mark, again, on the gold standard from Women's Health Initiative of estrogen plus progestogen. And it's logical to extend that to other combinations of estrogen plus progestin that are used systemically. So also with the patch as well. Um, And um, uh, so the, the problem though is that when you want to stop a patch, it's a little more complicated, right? Because you can't just fool around and cut patches in half and you know mm-hmm. indiscriminately mess around. Uh, so it's a little difficult in terms of figuring out how to wean down, how to taper. And it turns out that it doesn't really make a difference to the symptoms in the long term whether you whether you wean or not, whether you taper or not. It's just sort of a. It might help with with. Um, we're preventing recurrence of the symptoms in the short term, but over the long term, we shouldn't really get very concerned about weaning and, and what's the right way to wean because in the long term doesn't make much difference.
1: Right. So sort of let the patient drive that to some degree exactly. about exactly. Uh, how how quickly they'd like to wean. And I do get your point too though about patches and would we have to prescribe a new lower strength of a patch for the weaning and that can get expensive, etc. Uh, that's, that's great feedback. And Andrea, I'm just curious about your approach here in talking to women about stopping or weaning. Yeah, you know, I've started, you know,
3: just like any other medication, I try and set a timeline for how long um, we'd like to be on the medication, talk a little bit about the risks and the benefits of any type of, you know, longer term duration of use. And then we generally just start to do a slow wean. And I think that that's more of a a psychic benefit than anything else in terms of helping people feel as if they um, are not just going to, suddenly be put back in the position that they were in uh, previously having um, ongoing hot flashes. And it helps them kind of feel more comfortable with the process.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I think it's mostly just about talking to your patients.
1: Communication, very good. All right, we have a couple of questions coming in that uh, are not addressed in the article. Uh, but Carolyn, uh, lots of questions coming in about black cohosh uh, for menopausal symptoms. So what, is, what are your thoughts about about that as an option?
2: Right. Um, So we all, I think we all as prescribers are sympathetic to the notion that people want non prescription slash natural kind of approaches to treating symptoms. But unfortunately, there's a double, there's a big challenge here in the menopause field. And and the big issue is that there's a 50% reduction in hot flashes just from taking a placebo in many of the clinical trials. So we, we don't have good evidence that anything other than the estrogen um, and uh, some other, non, some other uh, prescription therapies like SNRS is all right. We don't have any evidence that the non-prescription approaches, including black cohosh, are better than placebo. Now, if the woman takes black cohosh and says, I felt better, maybe it is a placebo effect, but we have to believe her because she, she says she feels better. So it's a tricky thing, and we want to make sure that, of course, that we feel like our patients are, that we're, that we're displaying, that we're listening and having an intense conversation here. But the issue is that nothing is better than placebo that is an over-the-counter type of approach for reducing hot flashes and night sweats. Women don't like to hear that. It's disappointing, and I totally get it. Um, but I would not recommend Black Cohosh or any other uh, non prescription therapy at this moment. And we need to tell our patients to always look for placebo comparisons when they're hearing a bunch of hype on some new clinical trial of an over the counter uh, remedy.
0: We hope you enjoyed and gained practical insights from listening into this discussion. Now that you've listened, you can receive CE credit from Pharmacist Letter. Just log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. If you're not yet a Pharmacist Letter subscriber, find out more about our product offerings at trchealthcare.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe, rate, and review this show in your favorite podcast app. It helps spread the word about our show and is a great way for you to let us know how we're doing. You can also reach out to provide feedback or make suggestions by emailing us at contactus at trchealthcare.com. Thanks for listening to Medication Talk.